Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. We are here to answer your mortgage and real estate related questions, update you on the housing market, have some fun with me, my esteemed guest there, Mr. Josh Lewis. Josh, welcome back. We're, we're only going to have fun, Jeb, if this mic is actually working, which up until about four and, a half, four and a half seconds ago, it was not. So it came in just the right time. Dude, that's you needed it to show up and it showed up. Perfect. It did. it did. All right. So week over week, haven't seen a lot of changes with really with regards to to data, inflation, that sort of thing, right? I mean, last last week we saw the 10-year. Did the 10-year drop before last week or was it were we on the show last week when it was at three, 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 four? Yeah, I think okay. it had dropped. And basically, uh, just in terms of context for that, three, four, two to three, six, two is the range until we drop below three, four, two and stay there for more than a couple of days. And unless we drop or uh, jump above three, six, two and stay there for several days, that's that's the range. So we're looking for a breakout from that range um, and looking for data to cause that. Yeah. And outside of that, really haven't seen a lot with regards to data. And, and data is what is moving a lot of the market in various ways. And we did see mortgage applications had increased. And many of you guys know that has to do with interest rates dropping, also has to do with the time of the year, right? People are starting to get back into that, that home buying mindset. Many people out, out there have created goals, resolutions, if you will, to wanting to buy a home. So there's a lot more activity surrounding buying a house. Uh, but you know the biggest topic, Josh, and and it is interest rates, right? And we've talked and talked and talked to the point where we can't talk anymore um, about direction of interest rates, about inflation. But we are going to show a couple charts here in just a minute um, on inflation, kind of what the market's doing with regards to inventory, what we've seen with demand. But next Wednesday, right? So next Wednesday, we get CPI numbers or next Wednesday, the Fed meets. Next Wednesday, the Fed meets. Fed meets. Uh, Fed meets on Wednesday, pretty much already baked in the 25% basis points that we've talked about before, uh, which will take us up to what, 4.75, 4.75 on the, on the, the Fed funds rate. And I, there's some, there's some people out there that are, that are very smart people saying that that could be it. That could be the point where they pause. Uh, but if you look at interest rate traders and the probability, a lot of people are baking in another one in March, at which point that's the pause. So. We'll know a little bit more next Wednesday because that's when they're going to meet and they're going to release their Fed notes and we're going to get a better idea of what they're looking at. But until then, Josh, what are we actually seeing with rates? Let's actually, um, what I like to show is the uh, Optimal Blue Mortgage Market Index. Yep. And the reason why, because really the thing that's important to, to everyone right now is the direction of of interest rates it's not so much where they're exactly at like if you're locking a rate today and where i'm going to go with this is I had a call from someone they're not doing the loan with us but they watched the show here and they said hey um we got our contract we're getting ready to lock in what do you think we should do do we have to lock today the other lenders telling us yeah, rates you know we, we got to get this thing locked in and what we wanted to do was just show this chart here so the optimal blue mortgage market index this is going back to October. So this is about the time that Jeb and I were talking. Let's actually go six months. So if we go six months here, 
right through October, we had peaked. This was when we were talking 6.9%, 7% high. And we were there for what? From the beginning of October? Felt like forever. Through, through November. It felt like forever. And this was when saw a lot of cancellations, people backing out of escrow, people who were shopping at 6% or 6.5%. And they're like, whoa, 7%, that's brutal. So you can see pretty clearly here, this is not a straight line down. But that trend is down. Now, have we been up here a little bit over the last week? Yeah, but for practical purposes, the zero point rate has stuck somewhere in that 6% range um, for well-qualified borrowers, 6.00, 6.125 um, with well-priced lenders, maybe 6.25 with, with banks and lenders are a little more uh, not as sharply priced. And the, the FHA and VA government stuff, about a half percent lower than that, around five and a half percent. And it's been pretty darn consistent. I have a client that we have a really tricky transaction, multiple parties involved. We haven't locked it, had that thing in escrow for five weeks. It's actually a refinance. And for five weeks, I've done nothing. And there's been weeks where I'm like, hey, rates have been trending up. And I go and look. And for them, the pricing has not changed at all on their loans. For the most part, we are going sideways. We had talked last week, Jeb, that that may be the case all the way through into May until we start seeing a big drop in, in CPI, which we do expect. Um, but from now until there, it's probably just going to continue trending down. So if you're in the market and you're watching interest rates from home, I would say watch the 10-year treasury. And until we break and remain for several days below 3.42, rates are going to be about where they're at right now. No, good stuff. So let's actually take a look at, at some data here, um, some charts. And for those of you who have seen us before, followed us before, uh, we actually have a community, which we'll talk about in a little bit where we actually post these slides. So if you want to get them, look at them in more detail, um, you can find them there. But uh, so inventory week over week, pretty much unchanged. So let's talk about what that means, Josh. So typically, Coming out of the first of the year, we, we start with more or less the lowest inventory levels that we'll see probably up until the end of December for the most part, right? And then inventory starts to trickle to the market and every day you get a little bit more property. Um, and mid-February is when you start to see more and more, you know, that the, the inventory really build. Well, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is inventory actually isn't really building at all. In fact, if you look at the numbers that I highlighted there at the top, Orange County, Today, 2,494 properties. Last week, I think we had 25, 54, somewhere in that ballpark. So inventory is actually less than it was two weeks ago, which is somewhat surprising, even though we've come into a new year. And I'll kind of give you my thoughts here in just a minute on why. But Huntington Beach, week over week, we're the same. Now, why is inventory not going up? I think part of it is you're not seeing a lot of people come to the market for one yet, Secondly, I do think inventory has come to the market, but I do think it's been met with some buyer demand in the in the idea that interest rates have pulled back. And some of those properties that have come to the market that would be new inventory that probably would have just set if interest rates were still at 7% actually got under contract. And so therefore, those inventory numbers came down a little bit. So that's one reason why you're seeing those inventory levels not really go very far. Uh, here is where we are uh, inventory-wise nationwide. I think as of today, sitting around 460,000 properties nationwide, not a lot, guys. I mean, that's a really, really low number of homes nationwide. It is up 70, what, 71% year over year, but down nearly 43% from 2019. So some things to keep in mind on that one. The vast majority of the country remains below 2019 inventory levels. Why is this important? 
because in order to see a big down move in prices crashing, if you will, you need to see excess inventory. You need to see an excess supply, but not only an excess supply, you need to see distressed properties, distressed sales on top of that excess supply. So you need a lot of supply and you need a lot of people that have those properties needing to get out of them for one reason or another with having little to no equity. And many of you guys know there's a lot of equity and property out there. While there are some people that don't have equity, the, the, the vast majority of people do. This one, percentage of people doing price reductions actually declining. Uh, we started the year somewhere around 40%. So less and less price cuts actually happening in the market. Is that uh, because people are pricing their homes more accordingly? Maybe. Is it because buyer demand is coming out of, of, you know, of the slow season? Maybe. It's hard to say. But the idea is, you know, if, if, if the market was falling apart, those, that number, that, that trajectory of that line would be going the other direction. Uh, this is an interesting chart. Uh, so as the shift in mortgage rates has gone down, you can actually see what it's done to buyer demand uh, with regards to purchase applications. So the, uh, the chart here shows interest rates basically dropped, uh, applications went up. And you can kind of see going back and forth how the two um, work adversely to one another. Uh, but expect as interest rates you know, going down, that's going to create some buyer demand in the market. And then Josh, here's some economic data that you sent over. I'm not sure what you wanted to pull out of this one. Why are you going to put me on the spot like that? I probably sent Bro. that to you two, day, two days ago. You did, two days ago. So I threw it in oh, here. So really, yeah, let's talk about in, in the context here. It says firms reported an easing of labor and material shortages with over 50% reporting no shortages. Less shortages on labor means they don't have to hold on to their workers or hire, while less shortages of materials means that supply chains are easing. Material costs have drifted down significantly since last July, and more respondents expect falling costs in the next three months. So every week we get pushback from a handful of viewers here. Oh, you guys are insane. Inflation. I, I went to the grocery store and eggs are $8. So inflation, the inflation rate must still be high. These are the things that trickle into those measurements. And every day something is coming in our inbox. This was just the National Association of Business Economics uh, Business Conditions Survey. This is not empirical data. It's a survey they're calling and asking business owners. But business owners who are paying the bills every day are saying they're having less problems hiring and, and holding and maintaining employees. And they're having less problems with, uh, with their supply chains. So it tells us that we're likely to move forward. So on that same topic. This came from, uh, it was a quote uh, buried in another article from a deep report here, but the guy I thought did a great job of what we've been trying to explain to you guys here every week. It says, first, inflation will continue causing damage even if it drops back to zero, which it certainly won't. And the reason why is because inflation is a rate, not a level. So the level that we have reached due to last year's inflation rate is uncomfortable. And even if inflation went to zero, it doesn't fix that. So if inflation rises 10% one year, then zero the next year, living costs are still 10% higher than the year before. So if we use that example, the Fed would like it to go up 2%. So in those two years, it should have gone up 4.2%. Well, if in the first year we had 10 and the second year we had zero, well, the second year costs are still 6% higher than the Fed's preferred measure, than your favorite measure, than my favorite measure of wanting it to be somewhere in that 2% range. And preferably, my income goes up 3% a year and inflation goes up 2%. And every year I feel a little bit wealthier. And we're not seeing that right now. 
Um, so Jeb, that next chart, this was, uh, again, we talked about this last week. I thought this was uh, amazing that Saturday morning, I opened up the Wall Street Journal. Here you go. Consumer prices plateau as inflation slows to pre-pandemic levels. And there's probably someone furiously typing away right now. You're crazy. Inflation's super high. You know, gas prices are high, whatever their favorite measure is. If you look at the green line, that shows going back to 2010, when we were essentially getting that 2% year over year, some years 1.8, some years 2.1, that's essentially what 2% growth looks like. And if you see the slope of that green arrow line, then we had the red where we shot up way higher than anyone wanted it. But if you look over the last three, four months, the slope of the green line is very, very similar to where we were for the last 10 years. So People will paint it different ways. There are, again, very smart people who think inflation is a problem and will continue to be a problem for the foreseeable future, meaning the next six months. The numbers are going to paint a different picture, and it's going to cause mortgage rates to drop. It's going to give the Fed reason to believe that they were successful. And at some point, probably very late this year or into next year, the Fed will begin easing as the economy slows. But wanted to just give you guys context that when we sit here and say inflation is, is down or decreasing, we're not saying that prices are awesome and everyone should be happy about how much they have to spend for the stuff that we all have to buy. But the rate of inflation has normalized back to what is expected and what the Fed targets. No. And you were talking about everyone's favorite measure. Dude, it's eggs, bro. Eggs. eggs. Every comment I get are like, dude, you're crazy. Eggs are $7. Therefore, inflation's there. Okay. Yeah. Eggs will eventually probably come down. Um, they're not likely to stay at $7. But you had 57 million birds get killed from the bird flu. They had to kill them. Goes back to supply and demand. When you don't have the supply and you still have a lot of people that want to eat eggs, guess what? The cost goes up. That's what we're seeing. So, yes, there's inflation in things. Some things will moderate in prices. Other things will not. That's the reality. But with that said, Josh, this is a, a screenshot. This is a screenshot of the community that we created um, where we basically share articles. Josh shares some videos on rate updates. Basically, kind of what we're reading. The slides from the show will be in there. Just different information. You guys are always asking, what are we looking at? Where do we get the information? Where did that come from? Well, you can go there and get it. Uh, there's actually a link in the description of the video if you want to find it. I'll post it here in the comments in just a minute. But I thought I would throw that in there for anyone uh, that was interested. And then, uh, Josh, my mouse isn't working. So you're going to have to help me out here. <laughs> we going to the next slide? I guess we are. Uh, this this is a screenshot of the latest podcast. Just came out on Tuesday. When will housing become more affordable? That's the question that a lot of people are asking. Josh and I take a deep dive into that topic. Talk about what needs to happen in order for housing to become more affordable. What we're likely to see over the next couple of weeks, uh, months that could uh, help housing become more affordable. And, you know, what you can do in order on your side to kind of create more affordability. So if you haven't listened to the podcast, go check that out. And Josh, I'm once again stuck over here. Actually, I'm back. I'm back, bro. I'm back. All right. And we're back. So with that said, Josh, uh, is it time to dive into some questions? There, I think it's time to start, to start with the first comment that like I should have typed this for for someone before we started talking about inflation and that the current rate of inflation is right at 2%. Big G points out that inflation is not 2% from 12 months ago. Correct. You are very accurate. Every month when the CPI is reported or PCE or your favorite measure, they tell you what the year over year is. What we've been showing you 
repeatedly with 14 different charts and trying to explain it as many ways as possible so that everyone can understand. I think most people, except for Big G, have caught it at this point that going back six months, we have been at the Fed's preferred measure. The Wall Street Journal actually wrote an entire article last Saturday that explains that for over six months, we've been below the 2% level that the Fed uh, would prefer to watch. So you are correct. Over the last 12 months, which no one said that it was at 2%, it has not been at 2%. It's at 5.7%, if you're yeah. wondering. So over the last six months, it absolutely has been. And it's going to be lower over the coming six months. And we've gone through this ad nauseum. So if you showed up and didn't hear that conversation, go back and watch the first 20 minutes of last week's show and the show before that, and then you'll understand how it all works. All right. Linda says, should I believe in the Zillow or Redfin estimate? I purchased my home in July of 2022 in Central California. It appraised for 20000 over at a 4.49% interest rate. Now the estimate is much lower than appraised value. So should you believe Zillow? Well, here's the reality. Values have gone down um, from, from where a lot of people purchased their home in July of last year, kind of the towards the peak in the market. Now, should you believe Zillow and Redfin's number? I would say probably not. Um, you know, I'm actually, you know, I have, uh, I use Zillow and Redfin not for uh, basing values, but often to to see how wrong they are in some ways. And, and the reason I say that is because I have a property, uh, a potential listing in, in Buena Park. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's an investment property or a potential investment property. Nevertheless, Zillow doesn't know the condition of that property. That's the reality. And so they're putting the, the price of that property, I think at like 750 or something. When in all reality, if that property was a dialed in property, perfect condition, whatever, it would sell for probably 825, 850, maybe even high as 875, uh, depending on the buyer and and their plans for the property and so on and so forth. Zillow doesn't know the condition of the property, but they're pricing it significantly lower than what it would be if it were fixed up. In this case, the property actually needs a lot of work. And so Zillow's number is actually way overpriced from what it should be based on the condition of that property. So it's a good base if you understand how to you know, use other properties around it to actually come up with the value. But I wouldn't be looking at my home using that number as as to an accurate value as to what my home is worth. And the reason for that, we've mentioned it several times before, is because Zillow has no way, Redfin has no way of knowing the condition of your property. They have no way of knowing the location of that property based compared to the other properties they're using to come up with that value. Right. So if you've got a home that backs to a major street, right, say that's your home and they're saying your home is worth seven hundred thousand hypothetically. But the, the but the comparables they're using to base that home off of are dialed in properties, just flip turnkey interior location on a cul-de-sac. And the value of those properties are seven hundred thousand then the value of your home backing to a major street, not in perfect condition, is not the same value. And Zillow has no way to differentiate that. And so that's important to know. But if you bought last year, there's a chance your value is lower. Yeah. I mean, but significantly lower? No, not significant. 
Josh, you were going to say something. Well, yeah, what I was going to say is a lot of it comes down to also your area. An example I like to use, most of Huntington Beach, where we live, is half square mile blocks. And a builder built all the homes in there. So we've got four different plans with multiple different elevations, essentially the same square footage, very cookie cutter. The algorithm does a great job of knowing when we have a half square mile of nearly identical homes of picking up comps and giving you a good idea of the value. Where I live, ours, there's smaller houses, smaller, older houses behind me, bigger, newer on one side, much bigger and 20 years newer on the other side. And it is generally always off by $200,000 on my value because it doesn't know how to adjust for those things. So if you're in an area where it's a lot of custom homes, some people have a lot of land, some people have a little land, it's not cookie cutter tract-ish stuff with lots of similar homes for them to run the algorithm through. Um, it's it's not going to be super accurate. All right. Eric has a question regarding VA. Um, says, can a substantial cash reserve from a 401k, some sort of thrift savings plan, be used to overcome lower pension income? Josh? I don't have a definitive answer on this. I believe the answer is no. So I actually feel bad. I pride myself on my VA knowledge. Um, I believe the answer is no, because generally what you do when you have a big reserve, have a client right now, he's got $2.3 million in his accounts. He owns his home free and clear, but he wants to buy another home, then sell that. So we need to qualify for a mortgage. So what we can do is we can annuitize that income by setting up distributions and add that to his income. Um, I do not believe you can do that with a VA loan, but I can absolutely check. What I'm thinking most likely is you've probably talked to a lender that has an overlay on overall debt to income ratio because an otherwise well-qualified borrower with reserves, you can go to a really high debt to income ratio on VA. So um, let us know where you're at. Let us know who you've talked to, not the person, but uh, the name of the lender. A lot of people end up uh, at the usual suspects. If you Google veterans mortgage, VA mortgage, um, and you end up in a call center and several of the biggest names there, despite saying they do help more veterans than anyone else, they have overlays. They have a maximum 45% debt to income ratio when you can easily go well up into the 70s with a VA loan for some well-qualified borrowers who meet the residual income requirements. VA relies much more extensively on your residual income versus your debt to income ratio. So let us know maybe if you're still here in the comments, who you're talking with. If you'd like us to connect you with someone in your state who can help, um, we can run the numbers and see if possibly without annuitizing or otherwise uh, using your retirement income, we could help you get to a higher number that you'd be comfortable with. All right. KCW, uh, thank you for the $5 super chat. Uh, says, looking at new construction townhomes, 1.2 to 1.3 in desirable areas of LA. How much of asking, asking given some are sitting greater than 30 plus days per Redfin. So understand 30 plus days on the market is not a long amount of time by any means. Um, there were homes last year that sat on the market for 30 or more days and sold at the asking price, even above the asking price. So don't so much use the days on the market for that particular property as a measure of how much you're going to offer. Look at what homes around it are, are selling for. Um, what are the last new construction comps in there selling for? I mean, that's something to, to, to know and to follow. But if it's a desirable area, something you said there, something to note. I mean, here's what I'll say is, is I had somebody reach out to me today about some new construction property or recently built properties here in, uh, in Southern California. And when looking up the comps, some of these things have been sitting a little bit, but then I look at the comps and I'm like, Hey, listen, you know, a model match to that property sold in December for $15,000 more than this one's currently listed at. 
it's priced right. Now, does that mean you can't get it for less? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that it's not over. It's not priced wrong just because it's sitting for 24 days. It's a slower time in the year. Rates are just getting back down, what have you. But I mean, depends on how aggressive. If you want to get aggressive on an offer, 5% below. Hell, make it, you know, I, I think 5% is, is an aggressive number. Um, and if if it's something they'll they'll consider, and chances are nobody's going to come out and accept that. So if that's your number, then stick to it in your counter offers. If, if not, and it's something they're willing to negotiate, then you're going to have to play some back and forth and figure out what that number is. Uh, but it's hard to say without knowing the community, knowing the area, knowing how much supply they have. Do they have a ton of supply or is this, you know, one or two properties only? Um, because that that also needs to be factored in there. Uh, this is something we were just talking about, Josh. Uh, on There's a Malden. lot of questions in this question. There is, but let's just kind of t- overall, how will these things affect inflation? And we're talking about the reopening of China's economy. Um kind of the deglobalization pulling away from China. Let's not even get into that. China's reopening of the economy and escalation between Russia and Ukraine, right? Um, You know, Malden, somebody that we both follow, has been talking a lot about China recently and um, its impact on the global economy. So what are your thoughts? So a couple of things. The the first one is actually kind of easy. The decline of the U.S. dollar. um, So how does it affect inflation? It actually decreases our purchasing power when you go abroad. It really doesn't affect you if you're here. It can affect import prices. You know, right now, dollar is strong. It buys more imported goods, so it keeps prices down. Um, The other thing they can do in terms of interest rates, we talk about how inflation impacts interest rates. The dollar exchange rate, um, if it's moving rapidly one way or the other, uh, can also impact. So imagine that, I don't know, you're in somewhere in Europe and you want to buy U.S. treasuries. Well, if the what you have to do, you sell your currency, you sell euros, you buy dollars, and then you buy the treasuries. And then when you want to get out of that, you sell the treasuries, you get dollars, and you go back and buy euros. So if the dollar is worth less, you're going to buy less euros when you go back. So you actually want to see it appreciating. You want to see bond yields, uh, bond prices going up and bond yields going down, and you want to see the dollar value increasing so that you win on both routes of that trade. So it's not a big, big, big impact on interest rates, but if you saw a steady downtrend in the value of the dollar, it would put pressure on, on interest rates. Um, the reopening of China's economy. Again, Jeb, you mentioned Malden. Malden is in the middle of writing some white papers mm-hmm. on energy and the future of energy. And his concern is that demand from China, the one of the biggest economies in the world, has been very muted for the last two years because of their zero COVID policy. Anytime there's an outbreak, they shut everything down. Um, most people that are China experts uh, follow China. I am not one of them, but the ones that I read uh, believe that they could be back at full steam by the middle of this year. And that would put pressure on on energy prices. You know, the trend of deglobalization away from China. um, I was reading an article the other day that actually said it's, it's cheaper to manufacture in Mexico now than it is in China certainly cheaper to get stuff for here from Mexico than it is from China. So as things change over time, um, the impact of it is different. If we go back 10 years, if we had to stop making stuff in China, it would have been a big, big impact. Now their cost of labor has increased and more economies around the world have become more competitive with skilled labor or skilled manufacturing. So not as big of a deal. the escalating Russia-Ukraine conflict, there's nothing good that can come out of it. Um, and 
the people that I know, the geopolitics experts that I read, they think it's going to just slog along this way for a long, long time. Um, no one from the West wants to give enough support to the Ukraine that they could win that war. And Russia doesn't want to walk away with their tail between their legs. They're going to keep beating their each other's brains in for the foreseeable future with no positive impact. At some point, uh, a resolution, an end to that, uh, that is satisfactory to the West would be positive for the economy. But a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty. And, uh, you know, Jeb, I told you last weekend that I went through, I, I was a couple of weeks behind on Malden's weekly newsletter. For any of you guys watching, it's free. John Malden, um, Thoughts from the Frontline. It's about, you know, 15, 20 minute read. And he reads a lot of really smart people and brings lots of different perspectives to mm -hmm. the table. Um, and one of the things he pointed out is everyone, the, the turning over of the calendar year, everyone is responsible for coming out with a forecast because everyone's here. What do you think is going to have happen? These are the best educated guesses from the smartest people in the world, and they're still about 50% accurate. So that's my book report on the best educated people who are <laughs> right 50% of the time. Yeah, and and he'll have conflict. I mean, he'll have conflicting views of two people that he trusts. Soul, I mean, you know, gives a lot of authority to in their space, both which he you know uh, find you know finds them reliable sources, and they'll disagree with each other. So you got to take it for what it's worth. Use the information and use it in the best way possible. I mean, well, Jeb, the you know, the good example of that one last week, he had two people. He's like, I love these guys; they're both really smart. I trust them. I rely on them. But he one says the, the Fed yeah. is not cutting until they are well into the sixes, and you just said next week we'll get us to four seven five. The other guy said they'll be cutting aggressively by mid year. Both smart people. I wouldn't yeah. call either one of them dumb. They both know more about this stuff than I do, and they both made good cases for it. Um, I don't think either one of them are right. The truth is probably in the middle, but they make strong cases for why they believe what they believe. Good stuff. Uh, Eric is jealous um, that you're, you know, you got a little in and out over there. Uh, and Boris believes that if uh, you guys hit the the like button, that Josh might turn those things into strobe lights in the back. He he can do police lights. You want to do police, police lights? lights? We can do lightning. We can do all sorts of stuff. I don't know if I can do uh, it, the rave it might, strobe. But if you have a seizure, you might want to. But they, you can't do it yet because they haven't hit the like button, Josh. Oh, so you tell me, tell, oh, tell me when they hit the likes though. I want to I want to try it. You know they're they're not yeah. doing it. So it's uh, now I, I not broke my lights. They just off. broke them. That's great. Uh, just sit there in the dark. It's better anyway. We got one like, so you can uh, you can show them. Uh, let's see. There, they're back. Okay, just the basics are back. What's, we'll have to do it the a count bit. of what's the count of likes that you want before we try to see if we can do rave stroke. <laughs> you got to at least get to a hundred. I mean, that's like baseline. All right. Uh, let's see here. Um, I, I saw some questions. Uh, so we answered that one. Uh, Sharon's asking, any idea on new builds in the Orlando Horizon West area? No, we don't know Florida well enough. Um, I, I, I hear a lot of people talking about northern Florida still doing well. Um, I have a buddy that's a builder outside of Orlando. Last time I checked with him, uh, the market had slowed, but things were selling. They they were, didn't have to do any big price uh, discounts. But what I'll do is I'll reach out to him this week and see if there's anything that he could tell me about the market there. But quite frankly... We're not close enough to really give you any accurate information on that. Josh, uh, that was Sharon asking the same question. Uh, let's, let's go here for a minute. I'm not right. exactly sure what the question is, but it's a nice jumping off point. So Dom would like to know the most important thing you learned the first time using an FHA loan. Well, the funny thing is the actual first mortgage I ever did for anyone was an FHA loan. 
way back a thousand years ago, as Jeb likes to point out. Um, and it was a situation where Lady Home in Buena Park was paid off free and clear. She needed about $30,000. Let's tell you how long ago it was. House was worth about 120 grand. So 25% loan to value on that. Why did you use an FHA? Well, we needed to go to a higher debt to income ratio by a lot than what was allowed on conventional loans at that time. And she didn't have the greatest credit. So great tool enabled her to get some money at decent terms when she needed it. Um, but Jeb, where I, where I was going with this is you do oh. a big FHA. What do you got? Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I accidentally clicked out of that, but just keep answering the question. We're good. Cut it out, bro. Um, every year you do a, a big and thorough detail of FHA and all the changes mm -hmm. from the last year. And it gets a lot of attention. And from that, people hear what they want to hear. So a couple of things I would love that if you're in the market and you're thinking of using FHA, you've watched some videos online, either Jeb's or there's a couple of other good ones out there, but only watch Jeb's. Um, what I would say is they all point out FHA doesn't have a minimum credit score. You can get it with 580 with three and a half percent down. That is technically correct. And I have done 585 credit scores with three and a half percent down. Most of the time with that credit score, you're not going to get an automated approval. So it's going to be a manual downgrade. Manual has lower debt to income ratio. So all of the other things that you learn in those videos about what you can do, high debt to income ratios, minimum down. If it's under 580, you're going to put 10% down. So all of these things, um, they're true. Jeb puts nothing but true information in his videos, but in a, even a 30 minute video, you can't go through everything. So the big thing that I get is people will say, okay, um, my credit's not great, but I'm okay because I'm over 580. Well, you may or you may not be, especially if you need to go to a higher debt to income ratio. The other one on FHA, people always reach out. Hey, I want to buy FHA units. I want to buy four units and have three other people helping to pay off my payment. I think it is a fantastic idea. I have a friend who's in Minnesota. He does two to three of these a month, helping young first-time buyers use FHA to buy three to four unit buildings and then hopefully build up some equity and then buy a house after that. It's the easiest way you'll ever acquire units. Um, in high-cost areas like Southern California, we have something that's called the self-sufficiency rule. So the rent from all of the units minus a 25% vacancy expense factor has to exceed the mortgage payment. And it's just not even close. I ran someone for someone the other day here in Los Angeles, just the principal and interest payment was more than what 75% of the gross rents were for. So when you hear us talking a lot, when someone wants to get units, the self-sufficiency test doesn't apply to two units. So duplexes are great for first time buyers in high cost areas, but those would be the two big ones. But if you, Dom, if you have a specific question about FHA, let us know, but it's a great program. It's not right for everyone, um, but in the right place and the right time, it's a very, very good program to get into a home with very little down and very good terms. All right. Dina has a question. It says, so I put in an offer on a house, sight unseen with an agent, no disclosure form signed, offer denied. I switched to a new agent. Could I put in another offer with the new agent on the same property? So this is a bit of a tricky question. Um, because, you know, the first agent could be the one that said he procured the property for you um, and actually brought it to your attention or whatever and showed it to you. And even though no form was signed, the intent was there to purchase the property with that person. Now, could it be argued by you, by someone else that, you know, price dropped, you decided to make another offer or whatever? Sure. It's you can do whatever you want. How's that? You can make enough an offer with a new agent. The question is who's responsible for the commission uh, to which agent, right? And that's not your responsibility anyway. So it's not really your problem. It's for 
the two agents and and the listing agent to figure out who actually gets paid on that deal uh, based on you know how the offer was submitted. So to answer your question, yes, you can. It's just one of those things that you should probably tell the new agent, hey, listen, I did this with a previous agent and see what they think, see what they uh, have to say before making an offer so that they're not um, you know, blindsided if something were to come up with regards to how the commission's distributed. Jeb, I have nothing to say in relation to the question, but if yep. we start the dating home buying pool, mm-hmm. Dina, or, Dina is going to be looked down upon for asking questions like, can you dump one realtor for another realtor and just ah, move yes. on? People are going to look and go, I see how Dina operates. She's looking for greener pastures. Uh, for those of you who don't know about our dating site, we'll, we'll enlighten you here momentarily. Uh, Kim has a question, says, when saving for your down payment and other... Josh, when saving for your down payment and other fees, does it have to be in one savings account or can it be in different savings accounts? So, you, Josh, you, where can your funds be? Yeah, you can have it in as many places as you want. Just remember, we have to document source and season funds for closing. So, um, believe it or not, especially millennials, I don't say this in a negative way, but they'll have a Robinhood account, they'll have a Coinbase account, they'll have an online savings account. So, you might only have seven or eight thousand dollars, but it's across five or six different accounts. Can totally you acceptable? Depending on the loan program, cash on hand can be acceptable. Uh, many lenders do get uh, pretty extensive in their overlays and what they will allow. If you need uh, twenty thousand dollars to close and you have two thousand dollars in the bank and eighteen thousand dollars at home, um, I wouldn't say it's a hard no, but it, it becomes a tough sell. We have to show why you're not saving your money in the bank, how you had an excess in your budget and over what time frame you saved that money. But back in relation to Kim's question, if you have two, three, four different accounts, it's not a problem. Just remember um, for FHA, Fannie Mae, uh, VA, you're going to need two months statements of all those accounts. If there's big deposits, transfers, anything among those accounts, we have to source and season and explain them. So in a perfect world, I would have two accounts. I would have my main savings account and a, a checking account. Checking account, you're spending your bills, you're paying your bills with, and then your excess savings that you're going to use to put towards your house, throw that over into the savings account. So really the only thing we're seeing in there is periodic transfers over from your checking account. But there's no right or wrong way to do it. It just can create a little, some additional work for you and your lender. All right. Big G, a couple more questions. Says, do you think uh, all the people moving out of California will cause housing prices to drop? No. Um, the, the net migration is, is still not enough to make any significant impact. What I mean by, yes, there are people moving out of the state of California, but there are also people moving in. And a lot of times when you see the numbers reported, you just see the number of people leaving the state. You don't see the net number with people coming into the state and understand how many people are in California that aren't homeowners that want to be homeowners or that are potential homeowners. This place is packed with people. I mean, I, I saw a stat the other day. One out of eight people lives in California. Crazy, crazy. Like that's a lot of people here. So yes, people leaving the state, going to greener pastures, if you will. Great. But it's not going to impact home prices. Not anytime within with, within my lifetime. Jeb, I'm throwing something out there. You agree yep. or disagree? From what I see in my experience, I see people who are, I don't mean like low income, but on the lower end of the spectrum where they feel like, hey, I can't ever own a home here in California, so I'm going wherever. I'll go to Arizona, I'll go to Texas, I'll go to Missouri, somewhere that I can own my home. And then I also see some business owners on the really high end of the spectrum that have so much money 
that they can locate themselves anywhere they want and fly in and out to visit their business interests here. But like, for the most part, the people in the middle, they're like, they don't like it. We, we whine and complain about it a lot, but I don't know a lot of us moving other than I would say, I do know a lot of people hit retirement age where they don't have to be here for their job anymore. And they're like, don't like the politics. I love how much my home is appreciated and I can go somewhere else and either be closer to family and or have a much lower house payment. So I do see that. But for the most part, like more like non-retirement age people, it's either those moving so they can become homeowners or just find a better uh, cost of living or people uh, escaping taxing persecution of the wealth taxes in uh, in blue states. Agreed. Yeah, I agree. That's the easy way. I mean, otherwise, I'd just be rehashing what you said. Uh, Big G has another question. Says, is a housing market that increases by 250% in three years, Miami, Naples, a healthy market? It seems risky and unhealthy to me. So any market that appreciated 250% in that short period of time is not healthy. But I don't know a market that appreciated that much, not even Miami or Naples. I mean, those markets didn't see 250% appreciation in that period of time. The only time you see that type of appreciation in a property is when you get something super distressed, you add value to it, at which point it goes up. And you also need some luck, some market factors, and a lot of other things helping you to get anywhere close to that percentages. So most markets, the high end of the housing market over the last three years, I think saw probably close to 40 50% max um, in some of these areas. Uh, I don't know anywhere that's all anywhere close to the numbers that uh, that are mentioned there. Josh Ariel, longtime viewer here, says, what is the best buy down interest rate you could offer? Good credit score. So this is a trick question. I could just give you a number and it would mean absolutely nothing. Dude, give, the, him, give him a really good number. 2%. I can give you 2%. <laughs> Ariel. Yeah. Don't, don't have that. But um, are there options out there where you can buy a, a rate down to four and a half? Yeah, absolutely. They, they are out there. doesn't mean it's the right loan. Um, are we talking permanent buy down, temporary buy down? Uh, if it's temporary, three, two, one, two, one, one, oh, um, what are the credit scores? The government threw another um, clink into this in terms of, of even advising people on what interest rates are in that um, if you're at less than 100% of the area median income or 120% in high cost areas like Southern California, there are no loan level price adjustments. So we used to sit here and say, well, you only have a 690 FICO and you're only putting 5% down. So you have all these hits. Well, some people are no longer subject to those hits. So um, certainly don't want to evade the answer. And I would love to give you an answer. I'd also like for it to be accurate. Um, if, if you'd like to shoot me an email, um, get a little tighter on the details, FICO score, down payment, location, type of property, all that fun stuff, we can get you a realistic and real number. Um, what I will say, we go back to the charts we showed at the beginning of the show, rates are trending down and should trend down for the rest of the year. So in terms of permanent buy downs, um, just Sherry Berry, a listener to the show uh, here, a viewer of the show, she and I got off the phone, you know, 10 minutes before the show uh, ended here. And they have a 45 day escrow and they want the payment lower. And we're discussing, should we pay the rate down or should we get a zero point rate? Say, we should probably do a zero point rate because in six months, the expectation from my end is that rates are gonna be lower. So if we pay the one and a half points to get it three eighths, a half percent lower, that's money gone. Uh, you'll never get it back. That's for that situation, seven or $8,000. And if instead of paying it down, you put that towards principal, you're only going to get about half as much of a decrease in the payment, but that's your money because it's down and equity that you put in the home in, term, in the form of a down payment. So 
long way of saying it's impossible in this type of forum to give you an accurate answer and advise you properly and be able to pencil out the option so you could know which is the right decision for you. All right. Before we get into any further questions, want to ask a favor. If you'll hit that thumbs up, it helps the YouTube algorithm, helps get out to more people. That helps us accomplish our goal of helping educate more people. If you're listening on the podcast, take some time, rate us, review us. If you find any value, that also helps. Refer us to a friend. Um, help us get found on some of these platforms. That's what we're ultimately looking for. And if you need a referral source to an agent, a real estate agent anywhere in the country, a mortgage prof a professional anywhere in the country, uh, you can find one of those by clicking on that link, scrolling at the bottom or in the description of the podcast or video that you're that you're watching or listening to. So hopefully that's good. Josh, you're really dark yeah. over there, bro. The lens yeah. on that well, thing no. is, uh, what, is not what I did like a dummy. I was in a rush and I have my little light on and my big light is sitting over there in the dark. Should I, go I think get you got to I think is, you got to turn the big light you? on. Well, it is okay. it's a bit dark. So but anyway, more, as long as we're on the subject of lights, Jeb, did we get enough likes yet that we not yet? With we're at sixty. Rave. We're only at sixty. We need okay. forty more to get the get the I disco do going. The rave lights, so let's get there. All right, so we got some questions coming up here. Some some fairly easy ones, um, but we'll start with this one. John Aries uh, Concepcion says, "I own a condo in Orange County. I would like to move to Murrieta to and buy a single family house. Which is better for us to get a down payment?" a home equity loan or a 401k. So it depends. Um, home equity loan, right? Josh can talk about the pros and cons of a home equity loan. I'll take a minute here and talk about the pros and cons of a 401k. If you're going to do a 401k, I actually just did a video today, believe it or not, um, that posted on like short form content like TikTok and Instagram and that sort of thing. Talking about if you're going to do a 401k, don't do a withdrawal uh, because likely going to have to pay a penalty, potentially pay taxes on it. Instead, take a loan out on that 401k because you're just borrowing the money from yourself and paying yourself back. But somebody was nice enough to comment on the video and tell me, well, if you end up getting fired or changing jobs, you have to pay that loan back immediately um, with your 401k. That was news to me. I wasn't aware of that. So something to be aware of if you're borrowing from your 401k and you make a job change, that loan might actually come due. Josh, were you familiar with that? Did you know that? Uh, I've heard of it. I've never had it happen to a client. So it's okay. one of those that I kind of put to the back of my mind. But yeah, I've, I've definitely heard of it. And so if they're considering 401k versus home equity line, so home equity line, the con at the moment would be that interest rates are continuing to increase, right? So get a home equity line today, the Fed continues to hike the Fed funds rate, your rate is going to continue to go up. That's a problem. Um, so if you were thinking at the moment, borrowing 401k or borrowing equity, what are your thoughts? I think home equity is probably still the right move, but what are your thoughts? You don't know? Uh, we, numbers never lie, right? Right. Get you know? the numbers and pencil them out. So here's a couple of things that I don't like. Um, we talked about the Fed's going to raise a quarter of a percent. So you would most likely get a teaser rate for six to 12 months on the HELOC. But once that's gone, um, we would be probably prime plus one would be the most common uh, number. So we'll be at 775 on prime plus one, put you at eight and three quarters. Uh, check with your 401k administrator. I would bet you're paying a lot less interest and you're paying that interest to yourself. More importantly, the 401k loan, 
you are making repayment, we don't have to count that repayment in your debt to income ratio. With the HELOC, we would have to, to count it against your debt to income ratio. Um, I believe they will give you a fixed rate on the loan to yourself in your 401k, and it's going to be a, a lower interest rate. But confirm that. Don't take my word for it. Talk to your plan administrator. Um, so to me, I would get those answers. I would plug them into a spreadsheet and run through it. But I think the numbers would tell you that you'd be better off with the 401k loan. Well, there you go. Maybe I was wrong. But the numbers never lie, so check it out. We got multiple DOMs here. Is this DOM on multiple accounts, <laughs> or is this different DOMs? I don't know the answer, uh, but we're going to hit a couple of them up here. So uh, first one says, struggling first-time homebuyer here. What is it going to take to break the supply ice to this market? It's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, it's kind of a gridlock at the moment. If interest rates go down considerably, demand picks up, and... You see more inventory come to the market, probably, but a lot of those are one for one, right? Somebody's selling to buy something else. So you're not really getting any new supply because it's giving one, taking one. I think the only way to see a lot of new supply to come to the market is interest rates go way high. The whole housing market just stalls entirely. But even then, people are locked into super low interest rates, so they stay put and they don't go anywhere. So I don't have an answer. I don't think there is an answer that makes a lot of supply unless you see global just financial turmoil across the board for an extended period of time where people have to sell properties because they can't do anything. But I don't I don't see that being the case. Josh, do you see any any world in which we see a, a, a break in the supply chain? I mean, not no. a break in the supply chain, a, a break in the number of homes coming to the market. No, and let's let's answer another question here because it kind of comes at it from a different angle. Ricardo says in 2021, lack of inventory is blamed on low rates. Then in 2022, it was blamed on high rates. Does the rate have to stay within a Goldilocks range to unlock inventory? It's kind of the same question here. If we is there is there a, an interest rate where sellers would be willing to to move and buyers would be willing to buy, but, but not that doesn't such do a high anything. rate. But that what does that do? That that only. It's a one for one, right? So does it add supply? It's, in, it's in, not in necessarily all one. It's not necessarily one for one because we were at three percent. If you're at four and a quarter, you're going to have less buyers than you did at three percent, but you would still have some sellers. And maybe what you're saying, Jeb, is right. It's not the one for one, but it's it's a ratio coming off one side. You know, you would have more sellers at four and a quarter than at six percent, but not as many as you did at three percent. It's very possible. Yeah, but um, do those it, sellers sell and not buy anything else? Do they just? just not become home buyers at that point. Like, so if you're going to sell a property and buy another one, that doesn't really add any new inventory. Right? I got it. You're, I got it. You're, you're saying buying if one, they you're sell, they're a away. buyer. Well, they're generally moving up, up market. So what most people are worried about is the entry level inventory. They don't care that, you know, Joe and Jane can't sell their $1.2 million house and buy a $1.5 million house. They're saying I can't find a $500,000 first time home for me and my family. Yeah. Okay. So that's fair. So it does add some supply to the market, but it doesn't add any excess supply is what I guess I, what I'm getting at. And so you need excess supply to come to the market to really have a change in the narrative of what's going on. And I don't know how that happens. And I've thought about it, right? And and builders aren't the answer, right? I mean, the latter part of 2022 maybe opens up that sum. If, if the five and a half months of supply that they're saying that builders are are finishing construction on this year come to the market. Does that help it? Maybe to some extent, if you're in one of those areas. But for a lot of us, that's not going to change a lot because we don't have a lot of that new construction that is supposedly being built. But I don't know. Time will tell. 
Uh, Dom, the other Dom says, best way to find properties. <laughs> find, the find of, an agent. Battle of the Doms here. Right? Yeah, the most yeah fi- find an agent that you know, like, trust, uh, that you want to work with. You can use the referral link below if you don't have someone. If you know someone, reach out to them. Just get on something where you're getting properties that you want to see or, or that kind of meet your criteria and, and stay in contact with somebody. That's really the sure. best way. Otherwise, go door knock. Find a community you want to be in and send letters, door knock, try to create inventory. Jeb, you've talked about this before, but maybe answer again. Why do you think that it is important that you set up a search for your clients versus them going, no, I'm on Redfin, Zillow, Realtor.com, everywhere I know about every property in the world? Uh, you know, a lot of those sites are really good, right? They're they're a lot prettier than the links that we send you from the MLS uh, in most cases, right? Redfin, Redfin's got a nice looking site and, you know, pretty pictures to look at and all of that. Uh, but the, the, here's the thing. All of that information syndicates from one place, which is the MLS, right? It starts in the MLS. It syndicates to all of these different websites, probably hundreds at this point across, you know, the nation and even, you know, globally um, with some different brands. But why it's why it's best to be on the MLS feed is because that's where the information's input. Some of these other sites take a while to update. Sometimes they show information that's not accurate, not because they're doing it, um, you know, to to misinform people. It's just because sometimes there's lags in the data. Sometimes you know it, it shows something differently than what the MLS shows. So if you want to be accurate on the information, you need to be on a feed directly from the MLS. But the one thing there to keep in mind is. The information is only as good as the person that input that information. So, you know, a lot of times you'll get information from from the MLS or from Redfin or Zillow or one of these sites, and it's incorrect in in one way or another because it was in put incorrectly from the get go. So it's important to have a source that you can go off of and and have these conversations versus just looking at Redfin and thinking, oh my god, that's a really good deal on a property, when in fact. You need the backstory. You need to know what happened. Why is that property listed where it is? Was it a mistake? Is there something in the in the MLS comments that you should know that you don't know because you can't get it from from those websites? Um, and that's why it's important to have a, a real estate agent that can provide a little bit more context. So hopefully that helps. Uh, Josh, what what's the debt ratio credit score for an investment property? Investment property, obviously, you're not talking FHA, VA. They don't allow um, investment purchases. So conventional loan, it's going to fall back to the automated underwriting. So for a well-qualified borrower with substantial reserves, we can go as high as a 50% debt-to-income debt to ratio, 49.994 Fannie Mae, 50.494 uh, Freddie Mac. So is it guaranteed? Does everyone get to go to that ratio? No, well-qualified borrowers do. Most are limited to 45. Um, some with more marginal credit will be lower than that. So it leads to the second question there is credit score. What does the credit score have to be? Um, there's not a hard and fast number of what it has to be. There's loan level price adjustments that you'll pay for lower credit scores. Jeb, we didn't talk about that. That was a big change. We're, we, we are remiss in not adding that loan level price adjustment uh, chart into the, the intro. We'll talk about it next and, week. And we'll, start, okay. we'll start with it. it it's good. It, it's kind of a long discussion. They've... The Fed or the FHFA uh, recently changed those loan level price adjustments. But in general, the lower the credit score you have, uh, the more you're going to pay in terms of an interest rate or points to keep the same interest rate as someone with a better credit score. Um, but there's not a number where they say, hey, for uh, an investment property, you have to be higher. But you can be less likely to get that automated approval at a lower credit score. So the higher, the better, both in terms of rate, probability of getting approved by the automated uh, underwriting system and the ratio, the debt to income ratio that you will get approved at in the automated underwriting. Uh, 
There you go. Good, good. Uh, let's see. Uh, here's a good, good question tonight, Jeb. They're coming yeah. up with good questions. Some new uh, ones. Jay Homeboy, longtime listener, says, if, well, not if, didn't even say <laughs> if at all, in fact, uh, says, ever had two or more of your clients interested in the same property at the same time, how do you handle that? I actually have. Uh, over the last couple of years, when the market was crazy, I had, I, I was, there was a time where I showed three people the same property in the same day. Showed it to one person, they left. Next person showed up, showed it to them, they left. Next person showed up, showed it to them. Two of those three people wrote on that same property. Guess what? Neither of them got it accepted. Um, there were like 50 offers at that time, but I have had it happen. Um, I've never been in a situation where one of the clients got it and the other didn't, unless I was the agent listing the property, at which point it I don't really give a lot of information about where somebody needs to be, right? I'm a listing agent and just saying, hey, listen, make your highest and best offer. I'm representing multiple buyers. I can't really give you any direction, so on and so forth. But in the case that you're the buyer's agent, how do you handle it? You try to give them as much guidance as you can without giving them um, the other person's offer and the information and whatever. Rarely are two people identical in the amount that they're willing to offer, the down payment that they have down, the time frame in which they can offer, um, you know, the, the, the contingency time frame. So if you're, if it's a competitive market situation, which it, it would have to be, if you got two people kind of competing against one another, you just say, Hey, listen, these, you need to offer your, your, your best terms. This is what I would suggest. And can you get any more aggressive than this? Yes, no, maybe so, whatever. Rarely are the two going to be, be the same. And then you ultimately the seller makes the decision, right? And so you just try to be as neutral, um, as possible and do your job. That's it. But it has happened. Um, Josh, what kind of reserve savings does the bank want to see? Does the bank want to see when applying for an FHA loan? For for a six hundred thousand dollar home. Does it um, matter? Price, does the price, price matter? Price doesn't matter. Okay. If it's if it's eligible for FHA financing, um, in general, with single family residences, so non-multiple units. You are not required to have reserves. I don't have the reserve requirements up in front of me, but if you buy three to four units, um, lender may require reserves. But if you're buying a single family, you're buying a condo, no reserves required. But we go back to the automated underwriting system being a little bit of a black box. We don't know exactly what goes into it. FHA uses their total scorecard. We generally access it through desktop underwriter or loan prospector, but that total scorecard, we don't know what goes into it. Um, what I can say is I've had clients who their loan will not get approved by the automated underwriting system. We say, well, what if they had $25,000 in the bank? Boom, same borrower, same transaction is approved. So while they're not required to have it, it enables them to get approved where they weren't without the reserve. So reserves never a bad thing. Also, um, as a hard and fast rule, not required on FHA, but can be needed to kind of push you over the top if you have marginal qualifications. Good, good. Uh... And I guess Jim, the, last, the last thing that I would say on that, yeah. that does just because the FHA doesn't require it doesn't mean that it's a great idea. I don't like it. I We do help people all the time who use every liquid nickel they have to close yeah. escrow on Not a property. Suboptimal. Suboptimal. Sure. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, Dina says on a scale of one to 10 being the worst, how bad do you think the market is generally speaking? I, I'm assuming you mean bad on the sense of like crashing for the most part. Um Zero, one, I mean, no, not zero. Um, I think the market is bad in the sense of there's just going to be less sales in the prop in, in the market in general because 
of of where rates are because of the lack of inventory, right? I mean, those are the two things. It's just going to be a, a kind of a sluggish market. Um, bad, I, I I don't think like I don't fear a crash, um, and I'm not fearing the market appreciating by twenty percent. So I guess I'm a five. Like I'm I'm in the middle. Um, is it now? How do I feel like it's bad? with regards to the number of properties that are available out there, that's pretty high, like an eight, nine, like we need a lot more property to come to the market for this market to do anything. Um, how bad do I think interest rates are on a scale of one to 10? Eh, five, six, yeah, maybe six. If interest rates were to go considerably higher, you would, that, that, that number would go up considerably. Um, but I think if we kind of trade in this range, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think it could be better. It could be worse. Josh, what are your thoughts? I just think it is what it is. I don't know that this is that yeah, it's I don't helpful think of it as good to bad, think really. of it in yeah. terms of good or bad. I can't control it. I can't change it. Like a lot of people think, oh, I bet you're bummed. It's not 21 anymore or 22, uh, early 22 when things were just going crazy. I go, I didn't think of that as a good time. Like there were times when Jeb and I came in here and said, what in the world are we going to do? I've got 42 pre-approved borrowers. And they all have to write 35 offers to get one accepted. Yeah, that so wasn't fun either. It wasn't fun either. I mean, it's yeah. good. They eventually would find things, but they were having to make sacrifices um, that they weren't happy with. So there's there's not ever a Goldilocks market or a perfect market. So it doesn't really help us as professionals or help you as a potential buyer to think of it in terms of good or bad. It is what it is. I fall back to kind of our first principles. Are you going to be in this home long term? Are you stable in your life, relationship, job, income, savings, employment? Um, and do you want to be a homeowner? If all that's true, just it is what it is. Go out and, and find a home. If those things are not true, think about when the best time is for you to enter the housing market. Right. Can I go on a rant for a sec, Josh? Sure. Not really a rant, just something that bugs me a little bit. Everyone today, not everyone, the majority of people, I don't like to speak in absolutes, The a lot of people out there keep comparing this year, the slowest housing market that we've seen since 2010. They're comparing it to the hottest housing market that we've ever seen on record, 2022. And they're comparing year over year numbers, how much home sales have declined, how much home prices have gone down, how much inventory, blah, blah, blah. Guess what? The two are not comparable, guys. You cannot compare a hot, the hottest housing market on record to one of the worst slowest housing markets that we've seen on records with regards to, with regards to the number of transactions. It's an entirely different market for many reasons. And so you're going to see slower numbers. You're going to see lower numbers. If you're surprised by that, then you've been hiding under a rock. I mean, the numbers are going to look dismal. They're going to look disappointing because you're comparing it again to the hottest time we've ever seen. So just understand that. Stop like focusing on the number of sales is down 30 for Four percent, or you know, home prices are down 0.5 percent from December. Who cares? Who cares about that? Like, can you afford the house? Do you want to buy a house? Do you not? If you don't, that's okay too. Wait till you are ready to buy a house. It's one of those things. It's like you guys keep beating yourself up, thinking, you know, watching daily what the market's doing versus just focusing on the things that you can control. What can you control? You can't control the market. You can control, can you afford the payment? Do you like the house? Do you have money in the bank? How do you make more income? You can't afford anything else. I mean, you can't afford it. You can't control anything else. So just focus on you and what you're trying to do and stop worrying about, you know, everything going around you. And if you're offended by this, then I'm probably talking to you. 
If you're not, then hey, have a great day. Josh, that's where I'm at. I like All it. right. All right. Aagua says, is an out-of-state notary public allowed? I, I, I kind of spaced that out. It made no sense. Notary public. Uh, yeah, is is an out-of-state notary public allowed to sign real estate documents in California? Yes. Uh, there's a document that they have to uh, attach to the notary uh, to it to to be included when they when they notarize documents. So yes, yeah. Easy Jim, answer. what's what's the? Isn't there a fancy name? So like, not only can it be from another state, it can it's be like from an another country. No, uh, you, yes, you know the name. What's the name of the fancy one in in Europe? It's it's got a cool name. I I don't know, but I've had it happen because I had a client in Australia have to sign loan documents that were uh, or a grant deed in Australia, and dude, what a nightmare it was. I mean, this guy had to drive like he was in. I don't. He must have been in like the outback. Um, and he had to drive like two hours to a notary to get this thing signed and then had to drive like four hours to a place that could, uh, no, so he had to drive to an embassy to get it signed and then had to drive like another couple of hours to go somewhere that could ship it in a time frame that they would get it here within. And it still took like two weeks. It was nuts. Like this was I had a- the very, very beginning uh, of the pandemic. During the pandemic, also, I had a very similar nightmare with uh, a Navy active duty Navy sailor uh, stationed over in the Sea of Japan, and he was out on the boat. They, he said, they literally we could email them to the boat, and they could print the docs, and he could sign them. But great, they're on the boat; they're not going to fly his loan docs to shore. <laughs> so we had to wait uh, like two and a half weeks till they came back in. And uh, on the base, he was able to sign, get a notary there on the base, and overnight him back to us. Good, good. Lupita says, hi, Jeb and Josh. Hope you're doing well. You know, I just got to like, did you call me the other day, Lupe? Did you call and not leave a voicemail? Because I vaguely remember a call coming through. I was doing something, but I don't remember a voicemail. And now that I see your name, it's ringing a bell. Let me know. Am I missing something? Should I be calling you? Lupe, um, it, it's funny. We were just talking to someone earlier today and said how the audience can be kind of transient. When people are wanting to buy a house, they're very interested in real estate and mortgage. Once they get a house, they're less interested. And then here you show up 18 months later, still watching these two knuckleheads talk at the camera. Yeah, no. Now I'm like, I'm concerned that she called me and I didn't call her back. I feel like I dropped the ball here. Um, do you ever think we'll see the low interest rates we saw back in 2021? Josh, ever. Do you think ever you'll see that again? If I were a betting man, I would say yes, but not at such odds that I would be necessarily willing to to take the the bet. Um, if we say inflation is that didn't make any sense going. If we say inflation is going to moderate into that two percent range, tells you we probably have a ten year treasury above two percent, so two and a half ish. And if we have that and the normal spread between treasuries and mortgages is 1.7 to 2% on the low end of that, you should expect a rate around four, four and a quarter. I think that's kind of what normal is. So can we get a percent, percent and a half below that? Yeah, we get a, a bad economy. Fed has to cut. We get another, you don't want to say another pandemic. You don't want to say another, you know, great recession, things of that sort, but it's happened twice now. Um, and the Fed has made it pretty clear that they don't intend to stand by and let market forces uh, take effect. They will step in and do quantitative easing and push rates lower than what they otherwise would. So I believe the arc of interest rates going forward is lower. I don't think 
the the fact that we broke the 40 year downtrend in interest rates i don't think um it's a permanent breach i think that uh the everything that impacted us that pushed rates lower will come back into play but we're nearing the lower bound of where interest rates can be so long story yeah i do think that at some point in the next 10 15 20 years we'll see those rates again i, I wouldn't wait around um hoping for it to happen because it, it will take something pretty gnarly for it to happen and John coming in with delivery, it's an apostle. Ha, ah, that's it. Apostle. That's apostle. it. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, appreciate it. That that was good. As soon as I saw it, I, I yes, that's it. Uh, and Lupe, I will call you. So um, my ball, my bad. Drop the ball somewhere. Um, let's see, Josh. I saw some questions here that looked interesting. But before we do that, Darren bought his house in 21, June of 21. He's still here. Thanks, Darren. I like it. Appreciate the support. Uh, Mona, do you ever think home prices will come down and making it affordable to buy in California? What's Wait, affordable? Did, That's did the question. Did we record a podcast? Going we did. Detail we did record a podcast on this. What is affordable? Check out the podcast, The Educated Home Buyer. Go check it out. We actually, latest episode just dropped this Tuesday. We talk about housing affordability. What will make housing more affordable? It took us 30 minutes to go over that. So we can't drop it here. But if you go listen to that, you'll get the information. Jeb, I've got another big question. Is that episode of the podcast available on the YouTube channel for the podcast? It is not. It is not anywhere. It is nowhere. Okay. It is nowhere, Josh. Okay. YouTube channel? No idea what you're talking about. Okay. I'm just saying there may be a nice YouTube channel where these folks could uh, find some uh, podcast content. I don't know about it. I know nothing about it. Um... AG has a very general question here. It says, what is your advice for first-time homebuyers? In this environment, I think be patient. Uh, there's no rush to do anything. Um, work on things that you can control, like we talked about earlier. Work on your down payment. Work on improving your credit score. If your credit score is not perfect, if it's not above a 780, you got some room to improve it um, that will affect affordability, will affect the interest rates you get, affect your monthly payment. Those are all things you can control in some form or fashion. So I'd work on those two things. Um, outside of that, just, you know, waiting for the right property, the right opportunity, not getting caught up in um, the headlines, the media, not getting caught up in crashes and just focusing on the right time in your life and whether or not it makes sense um, to buy. That, that's really it. I mean, that's the best advice I can give you. Um, start with a budget. That's probably, honestly, that's where I should have started. Start with a budget. Nobody ever does a budget. They just think, I want to buy a house. And they go say, hey, Josh, here's my income. Run my credit. How much can I qualify for? I can qualify how much, for 750. No, how much can I'm I afford? Yeah. How much can I afford? I'm buying 750 because you said that's how much I can buy. And then they get in and go, holy crap, what? I have no uh, discretionary, uh, you know, any, any additional income uh, because it's all going to or additional income. That wasn't right. I have no, I have no money because it's all going to my mortgage payment and, and credit cards and whatever else, because you didn't start with the budget. So my advice, start with the budget. So Jeb, I, I wanted to throw this up here real, real quick. Um, so Mona says, okay, thanks. First time seeing show. Um, I, I hope that our answer didn't, didn't come across as snarky. We weren't trying to say, Hey dummy, it's out there at the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that is a deep um, question that we literally, we went 30 minutes in depth and we will give you a much better answer. If you look up the educated homebuyer podcast, than if we tried in two minutes to give you a quick and pithy answer. 
No, exactly. I mean, yeah, we're never pushing people off. I mean, the goal here is to educate people, but some of these answers require a lot more information than what we can provide um, in in just a short period of time. And uh, in order to get to everybody's questions or the majority of questions out there, we got to gotta cut things short. And so that one's just fresh. So I think that's the best place to find it. Um, you know, and, and AB, same thing for this question. You know, what would be the worst case scenario that the housing market comes down and becomes affordable? What's the worst case scenario that the housing What would have to happen for the housing market to come down and make homes affordable? Yeah, I mean, that's the same thing. We address it on the podcast. Check it out. I mean, here's the thing. How do you, let's, I think we can answer this really quickly. What, what drives home prices down considerably? I think that's really what people want to know. That's the answer that people want to know. How do you get home prices to drop significantly, to crash? It's got to be super high interest rates, super high interest rates and an excess supply. I mean, excess uh, number of homes on the market, excess supply. Neither of those are going to happen anytime soon. So, you know, there's other things that that control affordability, which we discuss in that. In well, that Jeb, I, I would I would throw this in there that for those prices to come down, you would have to have a massive amount of forced sales. Correct. So the things that Jeb talked about could lead to that, unlikely to happen, but could lead to that. So we would have to have massively higher unemployment while also having higher interest rates for that to occur. So these people that keep wishing, hoping, praying for a crash are simply looking and saying prices by X measure are so much higher than where they should be that they have to mean revert to a massive degree. And the reality is they don't. And again, we go through that um, in in the, the podcast episode and saying that basically the reason why that affordability can remain at such a high level for a period of a long period of time is that it self-corrects over time with higher incomes. So if prices don't go up at all, they don't have to crash. They didn't go anywhere for the next 10 years. They would be affordable because wages at 2% wage inflation would be 23, 24% higher in, in 10 years. So is that a potential thing that could happen? Could we go sideways for the next 10 years? Yeah. And do you arrive at affordability to draw the conclusion that the only way for prices to normalize and for affordability to get in line with the historical standards is for a giant crash is, is just ignorant in, in the ways of the way any asset prices can mean revert and how the laws of supply and demand, which the last I checked have not been repealed, will exert themselves over the housing market. Good, good stuff. Um, you know, I'm going to make a quick comment here too. something, you know, often it's like, Jeb, you're just a real estate cheerleader. You're just cheering for home prices to go up because you benefit from it. Um, when in all reality, and, and then they often say, well, you got to go to so-and-so and so-and-so's channel because they're, they're speaking the truth on what's actually happening in the housing market. Well, for those that don't understand how these algorithms work and how YouTube and some of these other platforms work, fear spreads faster than the truth all day long, right? And so, and guess what? It pays really, really well. A lot of these fear-based channels that are that are spreading, you know, the idea of, of the world crashing, blah, 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 they're getting paid a lot of money to push that narrative because it gets a lot of views. And if I was in this for making money, I would focus solely on just creating crash videos, which I don't believe in, uh, because I would make a lot more money than probably, well, a lot more than what I'm making now off of this, but probably, you know, but most of these guys don't even sell real estate. They're out there to push the narrative to get paid because that's what is, 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 you know, trending at the moment. So just pay attention to who you're watching. Like, 
Do they have any credibility? Do they actually know and understand the markets that were that they're talking about? I know one of these guys talks about the market he's in, and he just talks about how bad it is. And I look at the data, and I'm like, it doesn't look that bad. So, just again, a, a little rant there, but I think it's important to know, you know, who you're paying attention to, and and um, the narrative that they're trying to push and why why they're pushing it. Josh, there was a question here. Um, let, let me handle yep. this one because it'll go real quick and it's actually yep. a good one. Um, Brian says, what's the duration you can shop for mortgage loans before having another impact on your credit score? So this is the specific question is a mortgage inquiry. How, what's the window you have to pull mortgage reports, check with multiple lenders and have it be treated by a single inquiry? Um, someone had responded 15 days and that's a popular answer. It's not the right answer. The CFPB has a publication online. If you Google it, um, you have 45 days that you could pull as many mortgage inquiries as you want that only be treated as a single inquiry. Um, I think 15 days is reasonable. You should be able to get your shopping done within that time frame. Now, let's say on day 29, you find a new lender that you think is amazing that you didn't know of before, probably this Josh guy from YouTube. Uh, fine, go ahead and have him pull another credit report. You're within that 45 day window, but try to keep it in 15 to 21 days just to be safe. All right. Good stuff. Uh, this one is also related to credit says what happens to your credit score when you pay off and sell your house? Josh, does that boost your score or is that temporarily bring your score down when you pay off something like that? You want to know what's matter. funny is I rarely talk to people after the mortgage has been paid off. We have people that are selling a house and going to concurrently close on a purchase. So I rarely see a credit report after the fact. My answer would be this. A lot of times I get people, hey, I got a 632 credit score. I'm like, okay, let's see what we can do to potentially get you over 640 so that FHA is going to give you a better interest rate. Um, We'll look at that and paying off installment debt, which a mortgage is a type of installment debt, has almost no impact. I mean, virtually no impact, zero points every time. It's the revolving debt that is more important. So paying off a car, paying off a student loan, paying off a mortgage has very little impact on your credit score. Paying off or paying down your revolving debt, um, any single line or in aggregate will have a much bigger impact on your credit score. So it's not going to have a negative impact, but it's not going to have a positive impact of any kind either. All right. Chris is asking, should I be weary of buying property with an unpermitted ADU? Um, here's the thing with, with being a real estate agent, nearly 20 years, seeing a lot of property that has unpermitted structures. Is it something you should be concerned with? I think it probably varies by area here in Southern California. The city is it out to get you if you got an unpermitted structure in the backyard for the most part. ADUs are one of those that kind of falls under new guidelines anyway, but I think there's less concern with these types of things as long as they're done in a workmanlike manner, right? With with good uh, craftsmanship on it. So if you buy an ADU uh, or buy a property that has an ADU in the backyard and it's just thrown together, doesn't look safe, yeah, that's a concern. But if you get back there and the thing is done nicely and it, you know it looks like it was done correctly, they have receipts for it, back it up, show everything, I would be less concerned personally. But as a real estate agent, I can't really give you advice not to be concerned with it. It's just one of those things that you have to be okay with um, in in dealing with, right? I mean, could could you get fined for it in some areas? Possibly. But I think the, the large majority of the cities out there aren't out there trying to, you know, uh, go after people in these situations. So it's kind of to each his own. Um but I would, I would personally, if I were buying a house and it had one, I, I'm not really that concerned. Um, I'm more concerned with 
the structural integrity of the work that's done, right? So if I buy a house, for example, and they've removed a wall, you know, it, a wall is one thing, right? If it's a wall to a bedroom to a bedroom, eh, do I care? No, I don't care, probably. Now, if it's, you know, a downstairs of a, of a two-story house and they've opened the entire space up and they didn't get permits, I want to make sure that that's done correctly, right? That there was a beam put in, that there were footings put in, that the, all of this stuff was done correctly because I don't want the second story coming down. And I've been in properties that I know for a fact weren't permitted because you can see how poorly they were done. And so in those situations, I would be concerned. But for the most part, you know, it's one of those things case by case basis. Uh, Josh, uh, we got a question here, a couple of questions that we're just going to throw at you real quick. Uh, types of loans that you should consider with deferred student loans of 60,000 on your credit score. Everything else is clean, but I feel like that is a blemish. So thought. So when you say, Jonathan, you say deferred, um, are those deferred by the government, um, with the student loan deferment that you're not having to make any payments on them? Is that what we're talking about? Um, Josh, and, and with that, what loans can you consider if if you have some sort of student loans that um, are deferred or that you have a uh, some sort of uh, payment plan on? So they can be the the CARES Act forbearance has added some extra layers of work, effort, and energy for student loan borrowers because even if you had uh, a full repayment or if you had an income-based income-driven repayment you had your your payment and you had your statement every month and you could show it to us and go hey that's my full required payment and for most loan programs we can use your income-based repayment um, right now everyone shows it zero so that looks to the lender as though it's deferred or in forbearance we can't use that we can't use zero because we know at some point there is going to be a payment in terms of your credit score, is it a blemish? Is it a negative? Is having $60,000 of student loan debt a bad thing? No. Um, if there were ever late payments, which it can happen, um, people graduate, don't realize when the, the payments are starting and the, the statements go to an old apartment or go to their parents' house and they've moved to a new town. Happens all the time. You'll see, see late payments on there for someone who's never missed a payment anywhere else. But if you have a good payment history, they're on your, your credit report and they're seasoned and they show a zero payment because of CARES Act forbearance. It's not a blemish. It's not a negative. We have a couple of options between the different programs. Varies anywhere from about half percent of the balance as a monthly payment to 1%. So with your 60000 we would use 300 to $600. Let's say prior to CARES Act forbearance, you had an income-based repayment uh, plan and it was $92. If we get the documentation from the servicer that you have an income-driven repayment in place and it's $92, we can use that. Just somewhat getting that can be difficult. I have a guy right now that uh, for the last three years, he has not worried about it and it never got renewed because it was zero. And he, they've told him, uh, I think he was with uh, Navient and they were saying six weeks for him to get the documentation to show what his uh, IBR payment is. So in general, it's not doing anything negative to your credit. Lenders aren't going to look at it negatively. They just have to figure out uh, a payment to apply to it to account for in your debt to income ratio. All right. I'm going to hop through a couple quick questions here. Um, dragon said, dragon, my baggage. <laughs> pretty, pretty interesting there. A dragon carrying baggage. Um, if I have a USDA loan, therefore no equity, would it be smart to put any future money towards principal in a lump payment? Would that lower my monthly interest payment? It would not lower your monthly interest payment. And there's no reason to put money down towards your mortgage to lower, I mean, to create more equity in the property. And for any reasons, I mean, 
if you're going to sell the property and your equity is upside down, you could do it then. Um, there's no real reason to pay it down quick unless you're just trying to pay the mortgage down faster and therefore not have a mortgage. But having equity in your property doesn't really do much for you. Um, it's it, In fact, it ties up money that you could use in some other place. So I'd rather have the cash in the bank. And then at which point I need to get that principal down for one reason or another, then you can apply it. But I don't see a reason to do that otherwise. He also uh, had a follow-up, Jeb, that says, follow-up, would paying a bunch of months ahead be better? Um, not better, no. not worse. And, um, if you, what, and if you do pay months ahead, just make sure you determine like on that statement where that money goes. Because sometimes they think it just goes that you're paying it directly con, towards the principal. What I was going to say, Jeb, is contact the servicer first and say, yeah. this is what I want to do. I want to make this payment. Here's how I want it applied. How do I need to instruct you? Because there's a couple of options if you look on your statement. Hey, put this towards principal. Do this. What you're asking for, if you wanted to do that, can be complicated. You would want to talk it through with your servicer and make sure they are able and willing to apply uh, any lump sum payments. In yeah, you might be you might think that you're paying, you know, six months of mortgage payments ahead when, in fact, they took one as a mortgage payment and the other five going toward the principal. And then you might have a payment due the following month. And so you just need to make sure that, like Josh said, that you know where it's going. Uh, Michael has a quick question, says, appraisal came in 13000 low. My realtor said that particular appraiser has a history of coming in low, requested a rebuttal. What is the likelihood of them coming back higher? Josh, how often do you see a rebuttal happening where the appraiser comes in high on a conventional, I mean, comes back on a conventional loan? Yeah, because he's getting conventional, right? I was going to say, I, I, I thought it was. Yeah. Um, conventional can be conventional and FHA can be a little bit difficult because you have to go back and honestly put in the rebuttal, put in the documentation and show this is uh, why we think this is low and these are the better comps and you need to have actual valid information. What I can say, there's times when you and your realtor are right in terms of what the value is, but there's not data there to, you know, clearly rebut what the appraiser brought in. Um, so I would say 10, maybe max 20% of the time, do we get an upwards adjustment? $13,000, you're not a mile away. It's not a 30, 40, $150,000 difference. Um, paradoxically, people think VA with zero down um, is the worst. VA has far and away the best system for rebutting appraisals. They can't bring it in low without warning you first that they're not seeing the value. So we get to kind of put the rebuttal together before they've told us what they think their number is. So we're kind of working collaboratively to get the best data to support the sale price. And then even if they don't do it at that point, we can go to the VA. The VA can overrule the appraiser. I had one here recently, the appraisal came in $125,000 low. We rebutted it. Uh, the guy said, no, I'm right. And we went to the VA and got it up $75,000. So it was only $50,000 low, but it saved our deal. Um, long way of saying, all it almost always works out in your favor with VA. With FHA and conventional, I'd say 10 to 20% success rate. But small differences are much easier to overcome than big gaps. All right. A. Aguas says, probably an odd question, but in California, once a change in ownership happens, is the new buyer supposed to receive the deed or is it held only at the county recorder's office or the lender gets that? No, you as a buyer should get a copy of the new deed. It should be mailed to you um, once it's certified with, with the county. You actually get it in the mail. Um, yeah, so you should receive a copy of it. Uh, I want to know from Michael. Michael, if you're still here, what happened with uh, you? You weren't loving the loan officer you were working with and you were talking about locking in the rate. Did you stick with him or did you go with one of the other folks you were talking to? There you go. Let's hear it. Uh, Vegas real estate agent Reggie 
Nalasco, Reggie, uh, just heard a new banking rule that starts this fall where your debt to income ratio will impact positively, positively or negatively your interest rate. Is that just Vegas or nationwide? So Josh, are you familiar with that? No. And for the most part, lending regulations are going to be federal. Um, local stuff isn't going to supersede federal banking regulations. Uh, Fannie and Freddie, uh, it's not a matter of saying um, they're going to take into account debt to income ratio. What we'll what we will go over next week is they're changing the loan level price adjustments. And basically, we've That's said a million. Talking about. Yeah, we've yeah. said a million times here on the show that a 740 credit score on a conventional loan is your highest tier where they're they're adding two new higher tiers. And now to get to the highest tier, you need to be above 780. So the 780 person is going to get the score, the, the pricing the 740 got. The 740 and, and 760 are going to get worse pricing than they got previously. And they're going to take that and they're going to subsidize that for the people who have the 620 and 640 and 660 and 680 scores who are going to have less loan level price adjustments. And this is being done in the name of equity. We want it to be fair. But for the most part, credit scores are indicative of your payment history, not someone. And I, I see people that make a lot of money that come in with low scores. Like to me, I, I see people lower income. I have some clients right now, you know, they are going to qualify for the, the removal of all loan level price adjustments because they're below 100% of the area median income. But if it weren't for that, they have 800 credit scores. So they're not going to get as much of an advantage as the person with the 640 because we want to make it fair and, and equal. The purpose of loan level price adjustments was originally to account for the risk. Fannie and Freddie guarantee those loans. Um, and the purpose of, of changing the pricing was when there's more risk, they need to charge more to guarantee it. And now we're saying, no, we don't really want to do that. We want to make things e equal. And credit score isn't the color of someone's skin, their race, whether they have kids, whether they're um, anything. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, but it is what it is. And we'll go through it next week and break it down for you guys. All right. I saw a question here from Anthony it says for a home to qualify as a two unit property under Fannie and Freddie's conforming loan limits, does it need to be zoned R2 and have two properties or only zoned R2? So my interpretation of this is any property that has two homes on a lot is considered a two unit property, regardless of whether it's zoned R2 or not. Um, and even if it is zoned R2 and it only has one property, it's still not a two unit. It, at that point, it's a one unit property. Is, is all of that correct, Josh? Yeah. And really, we're, we're going to go fall back to the legal description. If it's not zoned R2, it really shouldn't be able to have a duplex on it. But it, the legal description needs to state that it's a duplex. There has to be two units there. You get into some weird stuff now with people who've built literally a separate structure, a little one bedroom, one bath house out back that's technically an ADU. So um, you can end up in some weird and gray areas. And a lot of it comes down to how the appraiser writes it up along with title and the legal description. So it's not uh, super easy and clear, but for the most part, a duplex is going to be two units on an R2 property legally defined as two units. All right. Uh, Brian ha says, is property tax considered in the back end debt to income ratio? Uh, the easy answer is yes. Yeah, it can. Um, it, or it is included. Yeah. Your property, uh, your mortgage, your taxes, your insurance, if there's mortgage insurance, HOA, uh, property insurance, all of that is included in your in your back end ratio, along with any other debts that report on your credit report. 
So we, um, if we have someone who's tied on the debt to income ratio, like we talked earlier, maybe you're at 44.2 and we can't get an approval for anything over 45%. If you're in an area with a wide range, we're going to be in, in conversations. Hey, before you write an offer, let me know. We'll look up the taxes on that property and calculate the debt to income ratio and make sure you're okay because they're absolutely factored in. All right. Uh, with that, he asked another question. What's the max debt to income ratio to get for a mortgage these days? You've touched on it a couple of different ways. Just go over the numbers with each loan real quick. Uh, FHA, 47 housing ratio, 57 total debt to income ratio. VA doesn't have a written maximum. They fall back on automated underwriting and your residual income levels if you meet their residual income test. And conventional, uh, the easy answer is a max 50, but not everyone gets 50. That's dependent on the uh, automated underwriting system approving it. All right. Rick says, is it better to put less money down on a conventional loan to get the better interest rate and just make a large first house payment? So I don't understand the question. Putting less money down on a conventional loan is likely going to result in a higher um, interest rate. But Josh, are, am I missing something here? Yeah, no, I am, I'm not sure where they were going with that. The less you put down, the higher the interest rate is going to be. Not huge differences. So no need to, to take out a bigger loan because what will happen, you say make a large first payment. Let's say you put 5% down instead of 20% down. When you put that 15 additional 15% down, it doesn't change your payment. You have to go back to the lender and request a recast, which is a form of loan modification, which will cost you time and money. So just put the 20% down. The only situation where this really works is 15% down generally has better pricing than 20% down because the combination of your 15% and the mortgage insurance gives more coverage to the lender, but it's not significant. And some people will do it and they'll say, hey, your payment will end up lower this way and you'll be able to get rid of the mortgage insurance eventually. I haven't seen an appreciable difference. So I wouldn't worry about it. Just put how much you have available down. All right. Uh, this is a question that came from Boris earlier in the show. It just says, I've been getting realtors on TikTok talking about big institutions buying more properties. I noticed it happening here as well, along with building, building rentals. Is this a new trend? Um, I mean, I don't know that it's a new trend. Institutions have always been buying property um, more so over the last couple of years, right? In some of the Sun Belt, some of these areas where where homes are a little bit more affordable and, and rents are high. Um, it, you know, there are some headlines out there that some of these companies have stopped doing it. And then there are other headlines that they are doing it. So at this rate, I don't know who is and who's not. Uh, but just understand that, you know, these companies are in it for profit to make money. If there's a way for them to get a fixed return um, on a large amount of money and it's buying property, they're probably going to buy it. Uh, you know, we've seen it over the years. I mean, there's even funds out there now, you know, with Bezos and some of these other companies where you can buy like a, a share, if you will, and they're going out buying properties in markets and so on and so forth. So I think you're going to continue to see, uh, you know, funds, uh, if you will, buy up property because there's a lack of it and there's demand for it. Um, and they understand how the, you know, supply demand chain works and there's profit in it. Uh, creative content 1461 says, if you have taken out a loan against your pension and it comes out of your paycheck directly with all tax deductions, will that count against you for your DTI? Most loan programs will not count it against you. Some jumbo loans will, but FHA, uh, VA, Fannie, Freddie will not count it uh, against you. And the rationale or the reasoning is if you default on it, who did you hurt? 
yourself. You're going to pay some taxes and a penalty on it, um, but it's not like you're defaulting on a loan. So from that perspective, you don't have to worry about it. All right. Uh, this one coming in here. Lola says moving to Orlando. Let's just take the city out. Moving to anywhere. Starting a new job. How long do I have to wait to apply for a mortgage? You don't have to wait at all. Uh, this is a common misconception. I get this question all the time. Answered it for someone earlier today. Said I've only been on my job for a year. I was having really bad anxiety before that and wasn't comfortable working. Say, okay, well, we just need to show when you worked before. You've been back on that job for a year. Where it can come into play is if you have variable income. Lola, let's say you're a commissioned salesperson. You get minimum wage and you make $10,000 a month commission. Well, moving to this new job, we don't necessarily know those commissions are going to continue. But use the same example that instead of minimum wage plus a $10,000 a month commission, that you get $12,000 a month. You leave a job in one location. You have the job in the new location, same line of work. No problem there. The lender's not looking, going, oh, you, we need to make sure you're going to keep that job. We're assuming with an otherwise good employment history where you haven't been job hopping, that the new job will be like the last one, and they're going to be happy to have you there. All right. Good stuff. Uh, we got a couple here. Bobby says, what are your thoughts about Melarus for a new property in a new community? Uh, so for those of you outside of California, it might be called something else, but Melarus is, is a tax here in California on uh, new communities. And what it is, is it's uh, a, a builder builds a community. And in order to do you know, the sewers, the, the schools, the streets, the playgrounds, the parks, all of that, they they sell bonds um, and those bonds uh, are, are sold to, you know, by by the county or, or what have you. And, and basically what it does is it creates a tax and that tax is added onto your property tax every single month um, in order to pay back those bonds that built the infrastructure. So it's an infrastructure tax on building new communities. What do I think about it? It's not great, but, you know, if you're wanting to buy new construction in a lot of these areas, like if you want to buy it here in Southern California, in Irvine, you're going to pay Melarus. Um, it sucks, but with it, you get a nice community. You get, you know, newer, uh, you know, playgrounds, newer parks, newer just overall feel to a community. So whether you like it or not, it's there. Uh, so the only way to avoid it is not buying in those communities. It does have a, a limit on it. Most of the time it's like 25, 30 years. So over 25, 30 years or after that period of time, once that bond is repaid, it goes away. So your property taxes would go back to whatever the, the normal tax rate is there. Um, you know, sure. I, I, I don't, I don't know that there's a good or bad. It, it is what it is. It's just a fact. And so um, if, if you like it, you like the community and, and you're okay with the payment, then great. If not, then, you know, just find something that doesn't have it. Jeb, from the numbers never lie category, pencil yep. it out. Pencil out an area with and without because it's funny that uh, the, the Melrose kind of gets accounted for over time. You know, 20 years ago when Ladera Ranch was built here in Orange County, I had clients that lived here in Huntington and they're like, we got to go down to Ladera. I can't afford these prices here in Huntington. I said, well, cool, let's pencil it out. And you'd look and that house was $150,000 cheaper in Ladera. But once you factored in the, the taxes, the payments were almost identical. So look and make sure you're doing an apples to apples comparison to any areas without Melrose that you would be interested in living in, in addition to the, the Melrose area, just to make sure you know what you can get for a given payment in different areas. There you go. Uh, on says, how do I search for a house that allows me to run a business? So, um, 
any house should in theory allow you to run a business out of it. Uh, so I don't know if there's a way to specifically search that criteria um, unless it's a multi-use property, right? Where there's like a business opportunity, like a commercial space on the bottom and a business up top. Uh, that Those are, you know, listed different ways in, in the multiple listing service. But outside of that, you know, unless, you know, there's some restriction within your area about running a business, any, any, you should be able to probably do it out of any particular house, but I guess it depends on the type of business that you're trying to run, right? If you're trying to run a, a retail business where people come to your door, then I don't know that there's a way to search those types of properties. If you're just running a business, like I'm a real estate agent and my business is based out of my house, then that shouldn't be a problem. This is a good question, Josh. Uh, Michael says, if the appraisal, if the low appraisal stands and I have to make up the difference somehow with the seller, how does that affect my equity? Am I in the red from the start? So Josh, let's let's give some hypothetical numbers. We're saying property uh, purchase price is 300,000. Appraisal comes in at 290. So it's $10,000 less. Um, I make up that $10,000, right? So the seller says, no, my price is is. 290. I'm not budging off that. I say, well, I want the property. I'm going to pay that $10,000. So now I'm 290. Am I in the red from the start? Is my equity position lower? Is it the same? Let's, like what, let's go what with a couple of definitions here, Jeb. Yep. What is my equity? My equity is the value of my home, less the encumbrances I have against it, less my yep. mortgage. So yep. I have a $300,000 house with a $250,000 mortgage. I've got $50,000 of equity, but what determines the value? Does the appraisal determine what the value is? And I will have said this a thousand times for the lender's purpose, they're going to take the lesser of the appraised value or the sale price in the real world, the value of the home, assuming that the property was marketed openly in the multiple listing service and the buyer and the seller agreed to a price that is the market value of the home. So you guys can negotiate at this point. I kind of wanted to turn the question over to you, Jeb, but let me kind of finish and then I will turn it over to you. There's a negotiation that happens here. It's not just, hey, you have to, to pay the difference. They don't have to come down. You don't have to pay the difference. You can walk away from it. And I want you, Jeb, to kind of walk us through how that generally goes and what the potential outcomes there can be. But I would say if there were other offers on the property and you arrived at this price that way, that tells us that's where it is. Now, if there were no other offers and you wrote this offer and there's no comps that support that number, the appraiser may be right, but you guys are rebutting it. So I'm assuming that you feel like not only is the value supported, you have the data to support it. So the value again is what a willing buyer and a willing seller agree to in an openly marketed transaction. But with that, Jeb, when we get to this situation, how does that go? How, how does that negotiation work from either side of it? Well, like you said, I mean, it depends on what kind of activities on the property, right? I mean, if, if you're the only offer and and you're not willing to go, I mean, go any, any lower on or offer any more then you got to be standing your ground saying, Hey, listen, I, I I'm willing to go down. Um, or I want the price of 290. I'm not willing to pay that $10,000 difference in this case. Um, but the seller can come back and request it and whatever it's, it's a, it's a conversation starter, if you will. You know, I tell people all the time that your, your first negotiation is getting the offer accepted. That's negotiation one. But a lot of people think that negotiations end once your offer gets accepted, once you get under contract. And the reality is, no, it doesn't. Additional negotiations can come up with price when you start talking about repairs on the property. When you start talking about 
the appraised value coming in less on a property. That's an additional negotiation. And I will tell you in, in experience as a, uh, especially in the environment that we're in now, as a buyer on a property that comes in less than the appraised value, I think you have more leverage now to negotiate that the the purchase price down without having to pay any additional. Um, your lever the leverage is in your favor just because of where the market is now. Unless you you know it was a multiple offer situation to start or what have you, but most sellers once they get into a transaction, most not all have in their head. They've started packing, they've started moving, they've started to think about where they're going, what they're doing, whatever. And so, you know, they're not going to let the deal fall apart over a small amount of money. Now for 10, 10 grand might be a lot of, uh, of money for somebody. Um, so you got to figure out like, is there, is there room for you guys to negotiate? Can you meet in the middle? Do you want to meet in the middle? Is, you know, are they willing to, to come down? Are you willing to come down? It's just one of those things that you've got to bounce off, but it's a negotiation and you need your agent, you know, um, kind of playing hardball on the, on the other side. And, and, you know, and if you know, the, the, if you know, the reasons that that seller is selling to start, if you know, they have a place to go and they have a timeline and a deadline and whatever, Use that to your advantage to negotiate that price down. But it's one of those things that, you know, obviously your agent should be helping you with um, versus just saying, hey, listen, it came in less. You need to pay the difference. No, that that's that, that that's the last resort. Try to negotiate it up front. Um, no, I wouldn't. No, I, I'm not even going to read the question because I think it's dumb. Not you. I just think the question is dumb. Um, Alma. Question, what are the fees for refinancing that we should be aware of? Josh. So you're going to have many instances in appraisal, but not always. So assume appraisal and credit report. You're always going to have to have a credit report. An appraisal, if it's an FHA streamline, a VA Earl, you don't have to have. If you get an appraisal waiver and a conventional loan, you don't have to have it. So it's really escrow title and any lender fees. So all of that is negotiable. All of that can be covered with a lender credit. So I would say on the low end, $1,500 of fees, on the high end, $3,000 fees for a, a traditional mortgage. If you're doing a $5 million refinance, it could be considerably more than that. But for most of the folks we're talking to here on the show, I would count on $1,500 to $3,000. And depending on where rates are at any given time, and if you think there's a likelihood for them to move lower in the future, I would consider doing a no-cost refinance where the lender gives you a credit to cover um, escrow title, credit appraisal, and lender fees. All right, Kyle, slow your roll, bro. Commenting down there saying that uh, we literally just skipped your question. No, we literally didn't, buddy. We just put it on the screen. But the reality is we don't actually have a lot of information to be able to really provide you any any real answers here. Um, the, the question is, what is your prediction with Charlotte market by the end of summer? We're not in Charlotte, man. And unfortunately, anything that we give you from out here would be like the guy in Florida telling you what's happening in Southern California. It just, it's not reliable. Um, I can tell you, I was in Charlotte, what, back in October. Um, you know, I have friends that are real estate agents there. Um, I have friends that are in real estate development there. The market was slowing, um, but things were still selling, uh, you know, and and in good communities, things were selling um, fast. So, you know, it's their seasonality to all of these markets. Hard to say what's going to happen by by the end of summer. But I think like like Southern California, I think we're going to, and, and I'm talking nationwide here. I think you're going to see activity pick up, right? From, from 
November, December, because rates are lower. The number of home sales is going to be considerably less than last year. Uh, but you're going to see some spring activities, some, some properties go, you know, under contract and, and the data month over month here in the next couple of months is actually going to be positive, but year over year, it's not going to be good. And, and I think that's, you're just kind of a blah year in real estate. Um, just because I don't think there's anything that's going to happen that's significant enough to change that direction. Uh, if that makes any sense, but find somebody local, talk to an agent that's in Charlotte that understands that market and ask that question. That's, and, and that's Jeb, your best bet. Kind of talking about that and then circling back to people saying, oh, they're housing market cheerleaders. Um, it's kind of silly and and not at all. Because what we talk, talk about, like what is, is almost for certain baked into the cake is a really low level of activity this year in terms of home sales transactions. Less people want to sell, less people are able to buy. So it doesn't mean that there's a crash and that prices are going to make a massive downwards move. And we've talked about a lot. We talked about it in the forecast video on the, on the podcast, um, went through for 30 minutes of what are the potential range of outcomes. And one of those range of outcomes is a small decrease in values, and it can vary from area to area. So one market may be up 3% this year, another one could be down 5%. So you need to get with an expert in your area, but a, a big sort of support or uh, something to, 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 to prop up the market on the lower end is if rates come down. We expect rates to, to end the year closer to 5%, and that will give strong support to keeping values um, in the range of, of where they are now. It increases affordability, it increases demand. doesn't mean home prices are going to go up. I don't think anyone buying now should be counting on 5 to 7 to 10% appreciation for the foreseeable future. All right. Good, good. Uh, let's see here. Um, I just saw a question. Oh, World Trekker. Which is better for a buy and hold for appreciation? A house near a lot of jobs or a house close to ocean, but further from jobs in SoCal? Um, I think the properties closer to the ocean typically appreciate more over time just because there's less property close to the ocean here in SoCal that's buildable. Um, but being near jobs is never a bad thing. You know, when you buy property, you want to make sure there's growth, there's opportunity there. You know, people want to come there for those reasons. So I think if you're in an area that's close enough to jobs, maybe not right by them, but people are coming there for work, but you got a house by the ocean that that's, that's, you know, the people that make the money want to be by the ocean. They want to see the view. So I don't think it's a, a, a lose situation either way, but I think, Again, closer to the ocean, homes tend to appreciate a little bit more long long term, just from the lack of ocean, right? The the lack of coastline over time. Um, would it be a bad time for someone to become an agent? No, I don't think it's a bad time. I mean, if any market, right? I mean, you know, mortgage, real estate, whatever. If you go in, you do the work, and you you know, you create the relationships and whatever. I think there's an opportunity there to be very successful, just like any other job. But if you go into it expecting that you're just going to get handed business because real estate is easy and your friends are all going to use you when they buy a house, then you're you're that that's the wrong mindset to start with. Um, it's it's a build it's a business built on relationships. If you really want to be successful. Uh, and I think you can do it in any market, just doing the work. So it, it depends on what your expectations are and what you're do trying you to get Do you have to like people, Jeb? No, you don't. You don't have to like people and you can still be successful. I know that because I know people that don't like people and they're very successful. <laughs> just, just so we're saying, or just so we're saying, 
I'm just saying. How's that? Uh, um, Dragon had a nice, a nice uh, follow up here. Uh, tell, telling the public to buy now isn't going to translate to that one dude making more sales. I'm pretty sure that, you know, Jeff has a nice following here on YouTube. It's not a big enough audience for us to impact the market by saying it's a great time to buy and home prices are going up. No, it's not. I wish it was, but it's not. Um, it's not. And, and again, you know, long-term real estate is a long-term hold. It is not a, you know, a, an overnight success story in most cases. The last two years, have been abnormal. And I that is stuck in a lot of people's heads. It's like, hey, my buddy bought a house, you know, for X price and it went up 30%. Oh my God, I want to do that. And that's not that's not what it should be about. It should be again, yes, there are investment opportunities out there, but most people don't buy property for for the investment aspect. Most people buy property because they need a place to live. They need shelter. And need to buy for the right reasons and and have that longer term time horizon and long term I'm confident that you'll be happy you bought a property uh but in the short term I wouldn't count on the appreciation that we've seen over the last couple of years here's the extent of my housing market cheerleading over a lifetime everyone should aspire to become a homeowner when that time is right for you it depends on all the factors we talk about your time horizon how stable you are in every aspect and element of your life your desire to own a home um, it will make a financial difference in your lifetime um, but the entry point is what you need to decide and hopefully we're, we're helping with some information for you all right uh brian has a question here that i don't know the answer to what's my thoughts on using realtor plus or a clever program where you get incentive for using their realtor agent. So here's the thing. Um, any any incentive type programs out there where you get some sort of rebate, rebate means that they're taking it from the agent's commission um, in order to give you that rebate. That's how those programs work, right? So say an agent's making X amount in order for them to give you a rebate, they have to take it from that agent in order to give it to you. So in some cases it can work fine. Uh, but it, it all comes down to the agent that you're, uh, working with, right? So most of the time, how these work is that you go to a, a website, right? We can say Redfin, Redfin is one of those websites, right? You go to Redfin, you like a property, you find an agent, they assign an agent to you uh, based on that area, that location, whatever. They're offering that agent a reduced commission and they're in turn giving part of that commission to you as a buyer. That could be great if you end up with a great agent. A lot of times you don't end up with a great agent. A lot of the agents, not all, a lot of the agents, because I've been on these websites, I've I've been a part of them, and I will tell you, I quit them because it just the caliber of people and the amount of money you make is just a joke, right? I just added it as a layer to my business, and I quit it because it wasn't worth it. But um, a lot of the agents that go to these are agents that are looking for business, right? And and maybe a lot of times it's their only source of business, and so you know. They're not the top agents. They're not high caliber agents in a lot of way because most agents don't want to work for next to nothing. And that's what ends up in these situations. So you you might get less uh, of a um, top notch agent. You might not, but you might um, when using those. So just keep that in mind. Uh, 
Do we want to stick with the Brian Wan portion of the? He has another good question here. What are your thoughts on recasting alone? I'm considering because I have to sell my house, but contingency offer has no hope here. So I'm assuming what he's talking about is getting a loan, bigger loan than he needs once his house sells um, so that he can buy without selling his current home. Then once his home sells, using those proceeds to buy that loan or pay that loan down. And then the recast, what that does, we talked about this earlier, making a big payment on a fixed rate mortgage will not decrease your monthly payment. You will just pay off your loan sooner. But you can contact your servicer and ask them to recast the loan, which again is, uh, it's not a negative modification, but it is a modification. They're actually going to send you a modification agreement that gets recorded against the property and says basically that we will recast the loan to pay off in 30 years as if you had made the bigger down payment. No problem whatsoever with it. No one can guarantee you that your servicer will approve it. Dude, so it comes down to- It never to, fails. Yeah, it never fails. Anyone that's in contacts gets through my my silent. The best part is my friend that's calling um, was told that I would be done at seven and could give her a call. But apparently 6.54 is 7 p.m. in some parts of the country. Dude, Chris Stapleton is going to reach out and want royalties Ro- from the show. Because his he's going to pay us royalties every for how popular week, he's become. Every week he pops up in the episode. Um, a moment ago, you talked about agents on these. We had a couple of different comments. And you guys always reach out here for the questions, the question and answer portion, the videos, people like comments, read the comment. Like some of the, some of the comments are annoying and some of the comments are just quite frankly, they're wrong. But when people have had an experience, pay attention to that stuff because that's where the gold is. Burn it up says from experience, most of the assigned agents suck. Um, KCW. But but how do you really feel? At Redfin, disappointing. So just, again, you guys can, just read the comments. Don't just watch the video. Look at some of this stuff. Um, what? Uh, Jeb, you only have a minute and 38 seconds to answer any more questions. Well, actually, what we're going to do here is, Josh, we are five likes short of you turning your uh, lights oh, into some sort of We need five disco. lights, and then we, can, then we can hit the strobes. It's some sort of disco in the back. So we're, we're going to ask here is that you guys like uh, the video. If you're not subscribed to the channel, I would I would ask a favor that you do that. It helps me. Um, and if you want to help me, I appreciate it. If you don't, I get it. Uh, but that's the goal, you know, is to educate, empower, guide home buyers through the process. And so um, help us out. I'm actually going to look and see if I can do something similar here on my side. I don't know how this whole thing works. This is just you're gonna crazy. Like, you're going to like the show yourself. I might. I might. Let's see. What do we got here, Josh? Are we at, we're at 104. 104 likes. Can Kyle we... subscribed and liked because you circled back and answered the question about the Charlotte market. Oh, you, you're trying to one-up me over there and, and beat me to the punch? Look at you that. You didn't even give me the thumbs up that I could turn the lights on. I, bro, I beat you. Look at that. Oh, that's rude. That's rude. What do you got? I'm going to be the lights? fire department. If you want to be the cops, I'm going to be the fire department. <laughs> that's not fire, bro. That's like... You just got regular lights. I got paparazzi. No. What's going on back here? Yeah. You know, we got all kinds of fireworks. You want fireworks? Where the audience is having strokes around the country. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's stop doing this. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be bad here. Let's go back to, let's go back. All right. There we go, guys. So anyway, we're wrapping up the show tonight. Uh, we appreciate you guys being here. Um, we appreciate you liking and subscribing, commenting. It all helps. Uh, but if you need a referral anywhere in the country uh, for a real estate agent, for a mortgage professional, check the link below. 
you want to join the community that we talked about earlier in the episode where you're seeing what we're seeing. There's a link in the description for that as well. Um, first time home buyer course, if you guys aren't familiar with it. There's a link in the description for that as well. There's a lot in the description. If you haven't read, you should check it out. Uh, podcast. You can find that there too. Josh, what are your final comments here, bud? Final comments. It's too late in the show. People are probably already checking out, but um, Jeb and I are, at least I, I have committed to uh, a small mini course. So like literally like 20 to 30 minutes um, on the mortgage side of the first time home buying process, just so you kind of the most common frequently asked questions in a video format. So if you have any ideas, any thoughts of what you would like me to cover in that, let me know. Let Jeb know if you'd like him to make the, the home buyer side of it. And we will put that in the circle community. And I'm not committing um, to anything else. I've got a lot on my plate. I've, I've, I'm over. You, can, you guys, moment. you guys can talk him into it. He'll do it. He'll overcommit. it. Uh, I am over committed. But anyway, uh, this will be dropped on the podcast on Friday. We will see you again next Wednesday. Till then, adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.